Welcome, everyone. Thanks for coming out on a special day here at Mendham. I became a follower of Jesus in 1986. And uh, my brother-in-law, who led me to Christ, gave me a book um, called We Would See Jesus by an author named Ray Hessian. And uh, it's an older book. I think it was written in the 40s or the 50s. And um, that book had a profound impact on me. If you've never read that book, I encourage you to read it. It's a little bit more of a difficult read, but it's a short little book. And um, the takeaway from that book for me was that uh, Jesus is not a means to an end, as he's mostly been treated by his followers for a long time. He, he's, a, he's a means to heaven, as we talked about last night. He's a means to my goals. He's, he's the co-pilot of my life to help me get places. And, and Hessian did a, a wonderful job trying to convince his audience that Jesus is not a means to an end. Jesus is both a means and he is an end. He is, he is the means to himself, God himself. And, and that book stood in, in my life as, as, you know, maybe the primary influencer of my walk with Christ. Several years ago, um, at the Life Conference for our youth, Greg Billing, one of our elders, had gone and taken some of the kids, and he, he had seen Sky Jathani speak at this conference, came home and told his wife, Renee, that, uh, that, that Sky was a really good speaker, and he had this book called With. And uh, Renee is a big reader, and so Renee read With and uh, came into my office and said, you've got to read this book. It's really good. If you're a pastor, you get lots and lots of books. Um, and so thank you, everybody that buys me books. They're, it's great. I love getting books. But I have quite a stack, as you would imagine. And, uh, and Renee says that, you know, she, she says, I told you that book was good, and you let it sit there for like a year. And uh, I eventually worked my way to um, this book called With by Scott Jathani and took it on summer vacation with me. And I was sitting on the beach reading this book going, this is the second most influential book I have now read. Um, prior, post, we would see Jesus. Came back, uh, our church did a sermon series on this material, and then, um, as you know, maybe the deepest kind of level of discipleship we do here at Mendham is through our, our mentoring groups. And uh, that book has been required reading in almost all of our mentoring groups because it introduces the concept of Jesus in a way that I don't know, I've, I don't know that I've seen anybody else do. And so I'm excited to have him here. He was here, uh, Sky was here last night, and he, he gave us a preview into his book coming out this fall, um, What If Jesus Was Serious About Heaven? Now, I've been going to church since I became a believer in the 80s, and I've been in some level of ministry leadership uh, for probably 20, 25 of those years. So that means I've been going to two church, church services every Sunday for a long, a long time, many decades. And as I did the math quickly, that equates to over 3,000 church services. And every single one of those 3,000 plus church services have had one thing in common. Every single one never fails. Every one of those 3,000 church services had the same thing in common. Not once did anybody ever walk out of one of those church services saying, geez, I really wish that had been much longer. <laughs> Not one time has that ever happened. Until last night. Um, when everybody in this room was like, you got to be kidding, this should go on for like three or four more hours because uh, the material was just so profound, um, the message was so important, and so uh, if you missed it, you missed it. <laughs> um, maybe we could get Sky back next year. He's got another book that maybe we can preview with him next year. But today, I have asked him to come up 
and, uh, and share with us the concepts that, that are contained within that book with. I hope you will discover who God is in a brand new way this morning. Would you welcome, raucously as we do at Mendham, Sky Jathani to the stage. Thank you, John, and, and thank all of you for uh, your hospitality and graciousness and welcoming today, last night. There isn't ever enough time to cover all the stuff that we'd like to cover. Uh, if, I'd love to come back, by the way, if anyone wants to invite me, we'd be happy to do that. Well, if, I'm done by the end of the day. At the end of the day, there you go. Uh, if you want more content from me, obviously there's the books and stuff, but I write a daily devotional called With God Daily. You can go to withgoddaily.com. I've done a whole series in that devotional on, on heaven and a bunch of other stuff. I've actually been writing it almost daily since 2014. It's a big part of my work. So if you want to check that out, all the archives are there, you can do that. The other thing is I do a weekly podcast called The Holy Post with my friend Phil Vischer. Phil's the guy who created VeggieTales. Oh, yeah, I actually baptized Phil Vischer. A few people know that. Uh, he joked that it was a veggie dip. Uh, <laughs> but we get into all kinds of current events, theology. We have amazing guests on there, uh, from celebrities to journalists to theologians. It's a great show, so check that out. It's called The Holy Post. Um, again, thank you for your hospitality. One of the things I really enjoyed doing over the last 15, 20 years is traveling and getting around the country and even internationally, because it gives me a glimpse of different churches and communities, and it's kind of my reconnaissance to find out what's going on out there and what are people thinking and how are they living and how are churches operating. I've seen a lot of interesting stuff, and whenever I come into a church space, I'm always curious about how they design the space, what its focus is what the, um, the emphasis of the building is, how people organize themselves. And this is a first. I have never seen a zoo habitat like that before <laughs> for a drummer. Um, love it, though. I hope you feed him from time to time. We fill it up with water now. Oh, yeah. So, but one of the other things I've done is I've traveled and, and encountered people. You pick up on different uh, messages cliches even, the things that kind of reverberate through the Christian subculture in America and words or phrases or ideas that take on uh, energy. And about 15 years ago, you might, some of you remember this, there was a really popular book circulating in Christian circles, has sold way more than mine, called Radical by David Platt. I'm seeing some heads nods. Remember that? So during that season, as I was traveling, especially at like Christian colleges and, and campuses and stuff, I kept coming in contact with people who were talking about they wanted to live radically for Jesus. And what does it mean to really be radical? And I had different conversations with people about what does that really look like? And one stood out to me. There was a middle-aged mom in the suburbs, and she came up to talk to me after having read Radical, and she said, here's, here's my problem. She said, I'm not convinced that I can actually live radically for Jesus in my current life. She said, I'm a middle-aged mom in the suburbs with a minivan. My kids go to a private Christian school. I'm fairly comfortable here. And she's like, how radical does my life have to be to truly be radically for Jesus? Do I have to move? Do I have to relocate? Do I have to change my vocation? Do I have to sell everything I have and you know, move to some part of the world and dig wells for clean water and you pick up orphans on my back and carry them to school. What do I have to do in order to live radically for Jesus? And then you go to college campuses, and it was like the thing. It still is, frankly, when I get around. There's this really wonderful part of this younger generation that wants to go out into the world and fix all of its problems. And that should be affirmed. 
But sometimes it's a little naive. These kids think they're going to graduate from college and solve everything in 30 days, right? So I kept bumping into this over and over and over again. And so what I want to talk to you about today is what does it really mean to live a radical Christian life? I think there's three different definitions of the radical life. There is the popular definition that we receive from our American culture, which has infiltrated a lot of the American church. That's one definition. The second definition is the one that's popular in a lot of churches, certainly among ministers and leaders. And then there's the definition of the radical life that Jesus held. So we're going to walk through those three different definitions of the radical life. And to do that, I want to use a story that's hopefully familiar to many of you if you've had your nose in the Bible for any length of time, and that's the story of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15. So Jesus is gathered with a group of Pharisees, religious leaders, and they're kind of annoyed with him, as they are throughout the Gospels, because of his acceptance of people that they thought were unacceptable. And Jesus tells them a series of stories to try to illustrate God's heart for those who are on the margins. And he kind of crescendos with this story in Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. We're going to kind of trace our way through this. And in this story, I think we have two illustrations of that definition of the radical life as the world defines it, as the church defines it. And by the end of this parable, Jesus gives us a glimpse of the heart of our Heavenly Father and what the real radical Christian life looks like. So let's begin in verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. All right, let's pause right there for a minute. In my household with my kids, we would refer to this younger son as a chotch ball. That's our vocabulary for just a jerk, a self-centered, arrogant jerk. Think about this. He goes to his father and says, essentially, drop dead. I don't care about you. I don't care about this home. I don't care about our family. He wants his part of the inheritance before his father has even died. And for reasons Jesus does not explain in the story, the father agrees to this, liquidates part of his assets, gives the money to his younger son, and then his younger son goes off to a distant country, which is a way of saying, I'm not just rejecting my father in the household, I'm rejecting the entire community in which I come from, goes off to a distant country where he squanders it in self-indulgent living. For me, this younger son really epitomizes how our culture defines a radical life. American consumeristic culture says that the truly radical life is the one that is spent in relentless pursuit of your desires. What is it you want out of this world? Whatever it is, you should pursue it by any means necessary. Everything and everyone is just a means by which you can achieve your dreams and goals. And when someone no longer is helping you achieve that dream, you are justified in disposing of that relationship and moving on to the next one. Think about this. This younger son looks at his father, and he doesn't care about his father. He just wants what he can get from his father. He wants the infusion of cash so that he can go pursue his dreams and desires. We have been formed in this way of thinking since we were children. When you wish upon a star, right? The whole Disney ethos is whatever you dream, 
Whatever you want, you can do it, and you should do it. Most of our Hollywood movies, our popular cultural fairy tales are all predicated on you have a dream and you should get it. And again, everything and everyone revolves around your desires. The problem with this, there's many, one of the primary problems is when we've been formed, saturated in that consumeristic, selfish way of thinking about life from the entire American culture, it shouldn't surprise you that we then import that into the American church. And what we tend to say to people is, listen, you've been trying to pursue your dreams the way the culture has told you to pursue it. Or you've been trying to pursue your dreams and desires in Oprah Winfrey's suggested way, or Dr. Phil's, or pick your guru, whoever it is, you've been trying to pursue your dreams and desires, and it hasn't really worked out for you, has it? But we got a better idea. The best way to fulfill your dreams and desires is to do it God's way. You should come to God, put your faith in Jesus, and he will help you get all those things you want. I have a friend who I used to work with at Christianity Today, and for many years he was a pastor in the South, and his accent's great, I can't quite mimic it, but he used to say, you know, Sky, we've made Jesus into the duct tape WD-40 combo pack here in America. <laughs> He's all you need to fix just about anything. And isn't that the truth? We appeal to people in the American church by appealing to their consumeristic desires. What is it you want? Jesus can help you get it. What is it you want to fix? Jesus can fix it for you. In this story, the son did not want a relationship with his father. He simply wanted what he could get from his father. And sadly, a lot of us in the American church feel the exact same way about God. We don't really want God. We want what we can get from God. We talked about this last night. We don't really want Jesus. We want heaven. And if Jesus is how to get there, fine, but my goal is not Jesus, it's heaven. Or we don't really want God, we just want a better family. And we think following God's instructions will get us a better family. We don't really want Jesus, we just want sobriety to clean up my life. We don't really want Jesus, we just want more success. And we think if we do it Jesus' way, we will be more successful. Go on down the list. We don't really want Jesus. What we want is our teenagers to stay on the straight and narrow. And we think getting them in church or following the ways of Scripture will keep our kids safe and clean and upright. Some of those desires are great, totally legitimate. But it's not really fundamentally different than this younger son in the story. This one definition of the radical life, you might call it Christian consumerism. In a consumer way of thinking, the customer is king. I'm the one in charge. It's my desires that you exist to satisfy. And when we bring that into our faith, this Christian consumer posture says to God, I don't really want you, I just want what you can do for me. Now, you know how the story continues. Let's pick it up. Verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to be filled, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. 
When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Okay. (laughs) Now, every time I've heard this story taught, especially when I was a younger person, teenager, young adult, it's always been presented to me as a story of repentance. This chotchball kid squandered his trust fund on stupid decisions, hits rock bottom, comes to his senses and goes, all right, I need to go home because this, I just was dumb. And so he goes back to the father. But is it really a story of repentance? Why does the son go home? Does he truly desire to be reconciled with his father? Does he really want a relationship with his father? No. It says he comes to his senses because he doesn't have enough to eat and he doesn't have a place to live. And he thinks, if I go home, maybe I can apologize to my dad and I can get one more handout. Now, he's been humbled. He's not asking for another infusion into his trust fund, but he still just wants something from his father. He wants a job. He wants some food. He wants a place to live. What's fascinating is many, many, many people come to Jesus throughout the Gospels with a very real need. Jesus, come to my house because my daughter is sick and dying. Jesus, we don't have enough to eat. Jesus, possessed by a demon, whatever it is, people come to Jesus with all kinds of needs, and there's not a single story in Scripture of Jesus rejecting someone in need. Not one. Do you think that everybody who Jesus healed deserved to be healed? Do you think they were all innocent victims of their circumstances? Or did some of them choose badly and get themselves into the mess they were in? And yet Jesus never turns any of them away. And he doesn't, in this story, the father doesn't turn away his younger son. He runs out and embraces him. We'll come back to that a little bit later about the father's response. But here's my point. Most of us first come to God with false motives. Most of us begin our life with God just simply wanting something from him. And that's okay. He welcomes us even with our bad motives. He accepts us where we are, where we start from. Even the disciples started following Jesus because they thought this dude is powerful and we get to hang out with him and when he comes into his kingdom, we're going to be on his right and his left. We're going to be, you know, the men. The guys, they had pride and arrogance and all kinds of false motives driving their decision to follow Jesus. And repeatedly, he rebuked them for this, like, you morons, you still don't get it. But he was patient, and he welcomed them as they were. A lot of us, I would say most of us, because of our formation in this consumeristic culture, come to Jesus with that Christian consumeristic mindset of just wanting to use him. And he accepts us in that broken, weird place. He doesn't leave us there, though. So that's the first way we define the radical life. It's all about pursuit of my personal desires. What's the second definition? I want to jump ahead a little bit. Down to verse 25. Because remember, Jesus said the man had two sons. In verse 25, we're introduced to the older son. It says this, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. 
Your brother's come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? Are you kidding me? It's implied in the original Greek. (laughs) So this younger son, or this older son, often called the good son, is irate. He's furious at his father's response to his younger brother. For me, this older son represents the way the church popularly defines a radical life. The younger son was all about his desires, his goals, his dreams. And as I said, translating that into our current Christian environment, this is an attitude that says, I want to use God to achieve my dreams and desires. Well, the popular ministry model, the popular message in a lot of the American churches to reverse that, and it says, instead of using God to achieve your goals, the really radical Christian life is to allow God to use you to achieve his goals. This older son is out there working in the field, and he says to his father, all these years I've served you. I've done everything you've ever asked me to do. I have made your goals my goals. Where's my reward? Notice that this older son is still incredibly self-centered. He wants a reward. He wants acclamation. He says, I want a young goat to celebrate with my friends. One of the things you've got to understand about this ancient Jewish culture is that when a household held a celebration like this, it wasn't just for the immediate family. It was a whole community affair, and it was a way of exalting and honoring the person being celebrated. And in an honor-shame society like ancient Israel, this was a big deal. This was your whole status in the community. What the younger son got for coming home was this massive boost to his self-esteem and his status in the community. And the older son is going, when am I going to be exalted? When am I going to be affirmed by everybody in this community? When is my ego going to be boosted and my status risen? The older brother was after the exact same thing as the younger brother. He also was in pursuit of his dreams and desires. The only difference is the older brother was going about getting it in a more socially acceptable way. Rather than telling his father to drop dead and give me the cash now so I can go pursue my dreams, the older son was a more patient, disciplined man, and he decided, I'm going to get my dreams fulfilled by doing the hard work instead. But I will get my fulfillment. That's what he cared about. Here's the point. The older son also did not care about a relationship with his father. He also was simply trying to use his father to get what he really wanted, which was status and acclaim. So how does this translate to the church, to the radical life? As I said, in the church, what we tend to tell people is, listen, you need to put your consumeristic, self-centered desires aside and stop using God to get what you want, and you need to get on mission for Jesus and start doing more of what he wants. And if you do, then we'll celebrate you. Then we'll praise you. Then we'll pat you on the back and say, now you're doing what really matters. It's not Christian consumerism, it's Christian 
activism. And you can define activism or mission however you want. It can be saving souls and preaching the gospel. It can be radical social transformation and justice. So I don't define it however you want. But it's still this idea that if you do more for God, now your life really matters. This was the definition of radical that I was hearing 10, 15 years ago everywhere I went. I need to do more for God in order to truly, truly live a radical Christian life. Tim Keller, I'm sure many of you are familiar with him. He's not too far away in Manhattan. He's taught and written a lot about idolatry. And he defines an idol not as a bad thing, but an idol is a good thing that we've made into an ultimate thing. Family is a very good thing. When family becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. In other words, it becomes more significant to us than God himself. Our jobs and vocations are good things, but when they become an ultimate thing, they become idolatrous. One of the most sinister idols in the American church, an idol that we rarely acknowledge or see, and this is going to sound strange, is the mission of the gospel. The mission of the gospel is a really, really good thing. But in too many of our Christian communities, we have made it into an ultimate thing. Believing that our entire value and significance is defined by how much am I doing for the mission of the gospel. We judge one another on how much are they contributing to the mission of the gospel. How much time are they giving to the work of the church and the mission of the gospel or not giving. And we rank ourselves and others in our eyes, in one another's eyes, and in God's eyes based on how much am I doing for God. Think about it. If God needs you to achieve anything for him, he is not a God worthy of your worship. Because any God that needs me can be no bigger than me. It's a fundamentally pagan vision of God to believe he needs us to achieve anything. It is not what scripture teaches. And yet it permeates so much of the American, especially evangelical subculture. Let me tell you a story where this really hit home for me. I live in Wheaton, Illinois, just outside Chicago, home of Wheaton College. Are you guys familiar with Wheaton College? They like to call themselves the Evangelical Harvard, which seems like an oxymoron to me, but very bright students, very brilliant faculty. Um, I did not go to Wheaton. I don't have any affiliation with the school, but I know lots of faculty and lots of students over the years. And there was a season where I had a, kind of gathered a group of students a sort of ragtag group of folks that found me for one circumstance. But all the students that I kind of had accumulated were all students that were really struggling with their faith in some way and found Wheaton to be a, a difficult environment in which to be truly honest and transparent about those struggles. So we'd get together on Sunday nights and have really frank, honest conversations about whatever they wanted to talk about. And one night we got together and they said they wanted to talk to me about the topic of habitual sin which sounded really juicy. I was like, yeah, let's do that. It's <laughs> habitual sin, meaning sins that are chronic, that you can't get rid of, that are just always persistent in your life. So we were sitting at this conference table, about 10 or 12 of us, and students are talking, and I'm kind of facilitating the conversation. Finally, I said to everybody, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to go around the table, and each person answer this question. 
I don't want to know what your particular sin struggle is, or, you know, it's a mixed group of men and women, and probably not a great idea to share in graphic detail. But I said, in the midst of your sin, whatever it is, how does God view you? And the first young woman began to share. She talked about how she grew up as a missionary kid overseas. And a generation earlier, her parents had been students at Wheaton College. And when they were there, a revival had broken out on campus that lasted, I don't know how long. And in response to this revival, her parents were deeply impacted. They committed themselves to be overseas missionaries. And she said, my parents are wonderful, amazing people. And I grew up in this incredible Christian community overseas. And I saw God do incredible things there. And she said, now I'm a student at Wheaton College. And how is God ever going to use me the way he's used my parents if I'm still struggling with sin the way I am? The next student shared. He quoted scripture. He said, to whom much is given, much is expected. And God has given me so much, and he's put so much into my life, and he expects more from me, and he's disappointed that I'm not doing more for him because of my sin. It took about 45 minutes, but in one form or another, every student shared some variation of that. God's disappointed with me. God's upset with me. God wants more from me. How am I going to be effective for Jesus in this world if I got this garbage in my life? Whatever it was, one after another after another, some of them literally in tears. I mean, the big sign out front on campus says, Wheaton College for Christ and his kingdom. It's all about going out and changing the world for Jesus. And these students felt like they couldn't because of the presence of sin in their life. So after listening to this, it gets back around to me, and I asked a follow-up question. I said, how many of you grew up in a home where your parents were committed followers of Jesus? They all raised their hand. I said, how many of you grew up in a church community where the scriptures were taught and the gospel was preached? They all raised their hand. And that's what broke my heart. And I told them this. I said, what's amazing is here you are after two decades in the American evangelical subculture, two decades of being in the church world, and now students at Wheaton College, the evangelical Harvard, and yet not one of you gave the right answer to the question, how does God view me in my sin? Not one of you said that in my sin, God loves me. They'd been singing it since they were probably in the nursery at their church. Jesus loves me, this I know. And yet when it really came down to it, the message they had internalized from two decades in the American church was not that God loves them, but that God wants to use them. And their value was all determined by how useful can I be to God. The, even the absence or presence of sin in their life was all seen through the lens of usefulness. How can God use me? It was heartbreaking. A lot of what we do in the American church, and we pat ourselves on the back for this, is we take younger sons and we make them into older sons. We take Christian consumers and we make them into Christian activists. We take the world's definition of radical and we go, no, 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 you need to follow the church's definition of radical. There's a lot of, you know, disturbing passages of the Bible. I don't know if you've ever gotten your nose in there, but it's some weird stuff. A lot of people point to the Old Testament. I think the most 
terrifying passage in the entire Bible is actually in the Gospels. And it came right out of the mouth of Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, he talks about the day of judgment. And he says, on that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons and do many mighty works? Now let's break that down for a minute. First of all, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience. And he identifies himself as the judge on the day of judgment. In a Jewish setting, only God is the judge. So Jesus is declaring his own divinity here by saying he's the rightful judge on the day of judgment. And the people, he says, will come to him, will say to him, Lord, Lord, they are acknowledging his divinity. These are people who believe that Jesus is God and the rightful judge. They have good theology. And these people will say, did we not prophesy in your name? That means these are people who preached, who proclaimed things in the name of Jesus. We're talking about pastors here, missionaries. And then they say, we cast out demons in your name. Now, you can take, again, that literally or figuratively, we can say that these are people who spent their lives fighting against the work of evil in the world. Social justice warriors, evangelists, whatever they were, they were against evil in the world. And then they say, and we did many mighty works. The language there actually means miracles. These are people who performed miraculous signs in the name of Jesus. They had great theology, they were missional, they were committed to the work of the gospel, they were against evil in the world, and they did miraculous things. They had spent their entire lives as older sons dedicated to the work of God in the world. And Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. It is possible to spend your entire life committed to the mission of Jesus and not actually know Jesus. This is the great danger of buying into the church's definition of the radical life. God does not need you. If you don't hear me say anything else while I'm here this weekend, hear this. God does not need you. He wants you. And that brings us to the third definition, the final part of this story. After the older son has pleaded his case, I've done everything for you, where's my reward? Why do you welcome back this younger son after all he did? Finally, in verse 31, the father speaks, and the entire story begins to make sense, including why he ran out and embraced the younger son when he came home and threw a party for him. The father says, my son... Verse 31, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Notice what the father does not say. He doesn't say, oh, yeah. You know, you've served me all these years. Thank you so much for all the work you've done around here. Really appreciate it. He doesn't say a word about the older son's obedience and service. Just like when the younger son came back earlier in the story, he started apologizing, probably fabricated, but started apologizing. The father never acknowledges the apology of the younger son either. All he does is run out and embrace him and then tell the servants, quick, put a robe on him, put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, kill the fattened calf and let's celebrate my son is home. The father never says a word to the younger son about all of his sin. 
He doesn't go, yeah, you moron, you squandered all my money, and you finally came to your senses. He does not say a word about the younger son's sin, and he doesn't say a word about the older son's service. Why? Because that's not what matters most to him. What Jesus is saying to his audience here, to these religious leaders, is that what matters most to our Heavenly Father is not our sinfulness. And what matters most to him is not our service. What matters most to our Heavenly Father is our presence. Our presence. This is why the father ran out and embraced his younger son when he saw him coming home, because he wanted his son back home with him. This is why the father goes out to the field to ask the older son to come back in. And when he finally speaks, he says, listen, all these years you've been with me. In other words, what's mattered to me all these years is not all the good work you've done for me. What's mattered is that I've had you with me. Your presence is what I've cared about. Don't you care about my presence? Don't you want me? This is the heart of our Heavenly Father. This is the heart of the gospel. God sent Jesus and had him take on flesh and die on the cross for our sins, not in order to redeem us so that he could use us to accomplish something in the world that he couldn't do without us. He could do everything fine, just fine without us. Jesus died for our sins and rose again so that he might reconcile us to God, that we might once again be called the children of God. It's about presence more than anything else. Another way of putting it, do you want God? One side says the radical life is using God to achieve our goals, the other side says, no, 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 no. The radical life is God using us to achieve his goals. But Jesus presents us with a completely different definition of the radical life. The word radical comes from the Latin word radicalis. It means root. It's where you get the word radish from. Radish is a root. The truly radical Christian life is not the one using God to achieve our dreams, and it's not God using us to achieve his dreams. The truly radical Christian life is the life that is built radically in deep communion, rooted in the presence of God. This is what Jesus talked about in John 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branch. Abide in me and I will abide in you, and through me you will bear much fruit. Abide, be rooted in the presence of God. This is what the Father is saying in the parable. I want you with me, rooted, present, abiding. That means the truly radical Christian life can be experienced by anyone, anywhere, in any circumstance. It's not defined by your vocation or your location. It's defined by your communion with God right where you are. Even a mom in the suburbs, in a minivan, taking her kids to a private school can have a more radical Christian life than the person who goes overseas on some mission for Jesus. I'm not against that. By all means, if he calls you to do that, do it. But don't for one second think that it makes your life more significant than someone else's.
The truly radical Christian life, in other words, is a life of prayer. And by prayer, I don't mean just talking to God. That's fine. By prayer, I mean communion with God. There was a book written back in the 1940s called A Testament of Devotion by Thomas Kelly. And he talks about the prayer life, the praying life, as a life of what he called simultaneity, which is a fancy way of just saying living your life on two levels at the same time. He talked about how we go throughout our daily activities, engaging in the world and in our work and in our relationships, but he said at the very same time that you're doing all that outward engagement, you can also be simultaneously experiencing the divine breathings of God, an awareness of his presence with you, abiding in his presence. Even where there's no communication happening with God, you can be aware of his presence with you and abide in him so that through you, his presence is manifested to others. That's the radical Christian life. It is the experience of life with God right where you are. So my challenge to you is to think, which definition of radical have you bought into? Is your primary posture toward God simply to use him to achieve what you want? Or have you, like the older son, been patting yourself on the back because... I've given up what I want, and I'm doing what Jesus wants now, and changing the world, or at least my community, for God. Great. That's not a bad thing. But it's not the ultimate thing. Or have you come to a place of recognizing that the most valuable thing in all the universe is Jesus himself? And do you want him? Because he wants you. Before you are called to some thing, before you are called to some place, you are first called to someone. That is the radical life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that in our broken motives and selfishness, you still accept us as we are. That you don't turn us away even when we come because we just want to use you. Lord, in our arrogance, in our self-righteousness, you also meet us where we are. I pray, though, that you'd be gracious to us in turning us toward a better path. Open our eyes to see your true value, your immeasurable worth, and awaken in us a desire for you, not just your gifts, and awaken in us a desire to experience you, not just to change the world. Lord, I pray for this community that it would be a place where each person, wherever they are, may be affirmed, blessed, where they might be encouraged to seek you more deeply. And Lord, we pray for those around us who don't know your value or their own, who are trying to manufacture it by pursuing dreams and desires, or who are trying to achieve it by changing the world and fixing broken things. Lord, whether they are an activist or a consumer, we pray that this church would be a beacon of light 
that reflects your glory and helps everyone who comes near feel the dignity of their own worth to you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit as one God, now and forever.